Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. Okay, so this will be our second week looking at the parable of the, what's called the parable of the minas. Some of your Bibles call it the parable of the pounds. That's just how they're taking the, uh, the word mina into English. Mina is a coin or a dollar amount worth about 90 to 100 days of a day laborer's wage. A talent is significantly bigger than that. So not that this is going to go into what we're talking about today, but if you're wondering what a mina is, it's a, it's a coin or a dollar amount. So the parable of the minas, let me do, I'm going to start with a quick review of last week, and then we'll cover a few more topics today. It's quite a complex parable, so we'll do a quick review. It's quite complex, so you really have to just sift through and pull out the things that help us with our faith walk. Every scholar you read, you'll find something different that they'll pull out of this. So we're just going to pull as many things out as we can. They might all be, the, the answer to all of them might be yes in some way, shape, or form. Last week we ended, there was a question about the difference between East and West. And so one of the things that we've done, or I've tried to do throughout our time studying the Bible, is to go back through and look through the Eastern lens, which would be anything to the East of Athens. And, you know, as Christianity developed and moved West, Westerners have a certain way of looking at the Bible. Easterners have a different way of looking at the Bible. So one of the things we want to do is go as closely as we can to the idea of first century Judaism, what was there at the time, and can we understand anything from the way the thinking was that helps us make sense of these parables or these stories of Jesus. So the first thing, Dr. Brad Young has a book called The Parables, Jewish Tradition and Christian Interpretation. So he does two things. He looks at how have Christians interpreted parables, and two, where can we find within Jewish traditions similarities? And Brad Young, uh, he got his PhD from Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He studied and worked under a gentleman by the name of David Flusser. Many of you have heard, probably heard of David Flusser at some point. Now, he's Jewish, but he was a Second Temple scholar and New Testament scholar, even though he was Jewish and taught at Hebrew University. And Brad Young started something, a group of scholars that got together, and they have what's called the Jerusalem School of Synoptic Research. And the whole idea is, how can we pull as much from that first century context as possible? Um, so they've been quite influential over the past 40 to 50 years of helping people see from, a, from an Eastern perspective what's happening. So even the idea of, say, the past couple of weeks, we've noted that as Jesus is leaving the town of Jericho, he tells this parable. And the parable includes historical references 
to Herod Archelaus, Herod the Great's son who took over, who was an awful king. And, by the way, Herod Archelaus was rebuilding or rebuilt one of a palace right outside of Jericho. So it actually makes sense. He's telling the story at the exact location uh, where Herod Archelaus would have been referenced. And Jesus does that all the time. If we can figure out what's on the ground with what Jesus is saying, they often match. So I just wanted to go over that again. And if you, if there's a reference you wanted to look at, this is a great book. He goes through a lot of the parables and then brings in some of the rabbinic thought into parables. And we'll do that again today. I'll show you another piece to that. All right. So that's just uh, a bit of introduction from a question that was last week. We talked about this idea how parables are structured so that you can have the surface reading, but then you can have deeper meanings, right? Deeper levels of meaning that you can pull out of a parable. So you have this particular parable on the surface, we would say is a faithful stewardship. And that's pretty much the whole parable we, we could read and say, well, it's something about stewardship. But stewardship of what? What do the riches represent? Because in the ancient world, they would tell stories about riches, but they often weren't just meaning money. It means something else. So it could be your wealth. What are you doing with your wealth? Are you putting your wealth to work? But then we could say, well, look, God gives you a soul, gives you a life. What are you doing with that gift that God gave you? What about your faith walk? That's a gift from God. Are you walking the faith walk in a manner that grows, that's like an investment? And then we talked about last week, God's word. What are you doing with God's word? God gives everybody the same Bible. What did you do with it? And what we noted last week was, the more you read your Bible, the more you get out of it. So it's like, God, since God is a God who reveals, when we get to his word, you look at it and you say, the quote from Jesus was, he who has, has will get more, and he who doesn't have, will, it will be taken away. So obviously a paraphrase. But that's how the Bible is. If you study it, you will get more out of it. If you don't study it, you won't get anything out of it. So it's, uh, that fits the parable. And the answer to what faithful stewardship is probably all of the above. You could pull all of that out of this parable, and you'd still be okay walking on your faith walk, as long as it helps you with your faith walk. Okay, so faithful stewardship, that's one of the main ideas. And then what are, what are, what are the riches that we're stewarding? Now we're going to talk today, there was this, I mentioned this last week, we're going to talk about the idea of fear versus love. So one of the, the, the third servant says, I was afraid of you. Now, why does Jesus include that? And the rabbis wrestled with this. How are we supposed to love God and fear God at the same time? So we'll look at fear versus love. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about return of a king. That's what I mentioned, the parousia. When a king says, I'm going away, and then I'm coming back to judge how you did with the gifts that I gave you. Last week, we mentioned, too, that you can read this parable in line with the priests, even. We've spent six weeks or so 
looking at how Jesus is pointing so many of his stories or parables at the priests. And once he crosses into Jerusalem, he's going to do the same thing. Parable of the tenants. They question his authority. They don't want to listen to him. And so the priests are often where where this is directed. And the priests, you could say, are the subjects who don't want God to become king. And then last week we talked about God's word as being what we're shepherding. Okay, quick review again. This is parable. So a parable, the word parable means to cast alongside. So you have something that's unknown or difficult to comprehend, maybe too abstracted, and then you want to take something known, something concrete, so that you could tell a story and relate it to the unknown. The word parable means to cast alongside. We're going to cast alongside something known to help us understand something unknown. So, for instance, something that's known in this parable, a king. Everybody in the first century would have known king. Servants. Everybody would have known servant. The subjects. Well, everybody's subject to the king, and they may not like the king. So you have subjects in the kingdom. And then, of course, riches. Many stories, as we'll look today, are told where riches are involved. But again, what do those riches represent? So you could say in this parable, in almost every Jewish parable, the king is representative in some way of God, or in this context, God's Messiah. That's Jesus. Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Christ. So Christ is the title for king. So Christ is a shorthand for you're the king. And when God's Messiah shows up, it's God becoming king. And of course, the priests don't want that to happen because they lose their power. So the king often is always God or the Messiah. The servants, right? So you look at this relationship between God and humans. It's often very difficult for us to, we grapple, we wrestle with, which is the name of Israel, to wrestle with God and man and prevail. We wrestle with God over our relationship. So the servants in this parable, and we'll look at this today, reflect that God to humanity relationship. The subjects in the parable, of course, don't want God to become king, and that would be the priests who are going to reject God's kingship. And then the riches, of course, well, you could just say it's D, all of the above. It's anything that is valuable that God has given you is somehow have to, has to be stewarded throughout your life, and then God give, takes an account on that. So, okay. So this is what a parable does. Takes something known, compares it to an unknown to help you understand a difficult concept. All right, one thing I'm going to introduce to you today that, again, it's underneath the surface. It's not explicitly said, but as scholars who are aware of this technique read this parable, say, oh, there's, the, there's the technique showing up. The technique is called light and heavy. Now, light and heavy, this technique is found all over. Jesus uses it, Paul uses it, and once you see it, you'll recognize where it comes from. It's a way that the rabbis interpret the Bible. The Hebrew word is this. You don't need to know that. I'm just putting it up for the sake of the video later. Kal vohomer, and 
we'll, well, we'll talk about this. There's a key, there's a key verse. How much more? So something light is compared to something heavy. If, if this is true, how much more is this true? That's a calvahomer. And it just means you're comparing something light to heavy. So I'm going to, I'll introduce this to you later to show you that there's one of these going on in the parable that has to do with our relationship to God. So parable of the minas, and if you want to turn to Luke 19, 11 to 27, what I'm going to do first today is read through it. So we'll get a, a fresh reading of it, and then we'll talk about a couple of the concepts within that. So Luke 19, 11, 11 to 27, I'll start here at verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. Now that's the Archelaus business that we've been talking about. Archelaus goes off to Rome to be appointed king, and then return. Verse 13. So he called ten of his servants together and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. And that's exactly what happened with Archelaus. A delegation of Jews went off to Caesar Augustus to appeal to the Caesar, Don't make him our king. So that's a historical reference. Verse 15, he was made king, however, and returned home. So that's exactly what happened. Caesar Augustus made Archelaus king. He came back and, of course, took vengeance on anybody who resisted him. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Verse 18. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I was a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money in deposit, so that when I came back, I could collect with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine, who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Okay, so that's the parable of the minas. Hopefully, after last week and then doing a little bit of a review, 
some of that stuff, particularly the historical side, starts to stand out. But we want to maybe set more of the context, if we can, to understand these types of stories that were told about a king who goes away and leaves servants with something valuable are they're commonplace. It's a way of conveying ideas to people about how to live life. One example that I'll give you, we mentioned this last week, is Aesop. Aesop, who wrote fables in the 6th century, he writes a fable called The Miser and His Gold. And it's, a very, it's, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's similar because it's a man who's, who takes his gold and buries it in the ground. He doesn't do anything with it. And then he's criticized, of course, for not doing anything with it. So, for instance, there's a children's book from the early 1900s. And uh, this illustration by Milo Winter, there's the, the miser looking for his gold. So that was, you can find that. I put, a, I put a link to this fable on your sheet at the bottom. The Library of Congress has all of Aesop's fables translated. Even Rembrandt, here's a picture from Rembrandt, a painting, the painting from Rembrandt called The Parable of the Hidden Treasure. So you find these stories, same type of stories, really go over a span of a huge amount of time, all conveying the same idea. So if we go back to this miner, the miser and his gold, I'm just going to paraphrase the story real quick. But so a miser has gold. And he, all he does is bury it in the ground. So every day he goes to check on the gold and a thief notices that every day this miser goes over and counts his gold and he sees where the gold is buried. So one day, of course, the, the thief steals it and the miser is wailing because of his loss. He can't believe it that he lost all his gold. And so someone comes over from nearby and says, here, look, I'm just going to give you this normal stone. I'm going to give you this stone. Let's just bury the stone. And now every day you can just come look at that stone just like you did the gold because that stone is, is as worth as much as the gold. Meaning, you're not doing anything with the gold. So why not just stick any old stone in the ground and act like it's valuable? And so the, one of the main points is a possession is worth no more than we make of it. That's, the story. That's what's going on in this Jesus story. What did you do with the mina that God gave you? If you didn't do anything with it, it's not, it's not worth anything. I, the, the only reason I want to show you this is to help broaden our context that many of these stories, parables that Jesus uses, like the rich man and Lazarus, that's a common story. It's role reversal. It's the Christmas carol type story. But the same thing here. You find these stories throughout cultures Jesus is then going to adopt it for his own meaning. So that's what I just wanted to at least show you, that there's one example of a similar type story. Okay, switching gears, I want to talk about fear versus love. It has to do with our conception of God, right? So we look at this verse, if you look at verse 20 and 21, uh, Luke 19, verse 20 and 21, then the, another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. Now, just a note. Let me step out of this, the parable here for a minute. In rabbinic rulings, 
there's a ruling that says if you have something of value and you think it might be stolen, you're allowed to bury it in the ground. That's what the parable of the talent does. But then it says what you're not allowed to do, you'll be hold, held accountable if you simply hide it under a piece of cloth. It's the same thing. So Jesus is using this idea of keeping it under a piece of cloth is something from their culture. Again, we miss that, but it's just an added layer of a cultural piece that they would see, the, first, the people in the first century would see. All right, verse 21 says, I was afraid of you. That is the key. How is the person responding? And how do we respond to God? So I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. And the key right here, Jesus wants us to recognize the, two, the first two servants weren't afraid. They took risks because they know the type of God they're worshiping. This one was afraid. And then the fear shrinks you. It seizes you up. And, you know, God says over and over again, don't, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Because fear is just one of the worst things for the, for human spirit to diminish a human spirit. I want to at least give you a little diagram about what I think is going on here. So if we think about it, it's all about how we conceive God. What's your conception of the God you're worshiping? And this is a big problem in humanity. How do we conceive God? Now, you have God as such. God is what he is. But then you have our conception of God. And the conception, unfortunately, is always a little distorted because we're limited, right? So that little box around the person just says, look, we're all limited. All of our minds are so much smaller than God's mind. It's impossible. We can't fully conceive God. God gives us enough that's sufficient. It's sufficient to have a relationship with God. It's sufficient for salvation. But we don't know everything. And that's, we have to constantly remember that, that we're bumping into our limitations, and what we do with our limitations is we shrink God down into a box. And then, if you look at all the denominations within Christianity, it's because oftentimes people have shrunk God down into their own box. And that happens because of our limitations. So, it's, we have a sufficient enough conception, but it's not complete. So what happens then when this conception right here is based on fear? How does that then affect our life? When we, have, um, when we think about God only as a judgmental father in the sky who's waiting to, you know, smite you, what happens then when the stranger, when someone else comes walking up, right? How do we treat then our neighbor if our conception of God is based on fear. And often, it's the same. So what we get, this is one of the keys, of course, because Jesus is going to say, there's two great commandments, right? Whatever, however we conceive of God filters down into how we conceive of the one who's made in the image of God, the other person. And so what if you're afraid of allowing the tax collector to come into your community because they're a tax collector? And so you think God's going to punish you, and therefore you're pushing people out to the margins. There's the Zacchaeus story. So one of the key verses to this, and I want you to turn there because this is so key, is the book of Exodus. 
It's Exodus 34, 6 and 7, because I think this is, this is a set of verses that everybody should have memorized. So that we can take our conception of God and make sure that we're not leaving something out or limiting God. Like the Zacchaeus story is the idea that, that we place our own limitations on who can be redeemed. The priest said, if you're a tax collector, you can't be redeemed. God says, nonsense, I can redeem anybody. So it's, that, it's placing a limitation on what God can do. So Exodus 34, this is the famous attributes of God. In the previous chapter, Moses says to God, I want you to show me who you are. God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. So God is goodness. Now, what is goodness? Well, it's all of these attributes that are bound up together. It's the highest goodness possible. And that's exactly what God says. So if, if you say, well, what's the definition of goodness? Here it comes. Because when God goes, he passes in front of Moses and he says, the Lord, the Lord, this is verse six now, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousands, and then forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, you can't tell in English, but forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, the author uses the three primary Hebrew words for sin wickedness, rebellion, and sin. In a sense, it's like the author, who, or as they're writing this down, or God is saying, there's nothing that can't be redeemed. Every aspect of sin can be redeemed. So everything's included in this sentence. So those are the, the attributes of God. Now look at the last one, because lest you think God is just going to let anybody get, by, get away with anything, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So you can be, you can rest assured, you can be at peace knowing that God is going to hold everybody accountable for exactly what they need to be held accountable for. So if we go to a list, this is that, and this is great attributes of God, and we often, for somebody who fears God, will often forget all of these. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, love and faithfulness, maintaining love, how many different ways can you say? One of the cool things is the word for compassionate is the word that means womb, like a female womb. And the idea is God treats this all human beings as if it was a child that came from, his, from your womb. That's how God treats humanity. And then the last one, of course, forgiving wicked rebe rebellion and sin. And then we look at the other side, the negative side, and you've only got one. But that idea of fearing God, right? So if we go back to this, fearing God can become distorted. We can fear God too much. It shuts us down, and then we start fearing other people. Maybe we don't reach out in a way because we think somehow God might punish us. So the fear is a big, it's a big issue. Let me just show you real quick. I, I'm not going to have you turn there, but you all know this verse. Isaiah says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. 
this is something we have to hold in front of us all the time. God is so much more than we can conceive of. So let's not limit God through our own limitations. So if we go back to this, if we can replace that fear with love, and then the bottom fear will get replaced with love, and so then Jesus says this, there's two greatest commandments. One, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And second, to love your neighbor as yourself. That also means we have to be compassionate with ourselves. So forgiveness, part of forgiveness is forgiving yourself for not being perfect. Forgiving yourself for not knowing everything all at once. Forgiving yourself for not being able to do the things that you think that you ought to do. That's part of even being compassionate with yourself, which helps you be able to see God and your neighbor differently. So anyways, I just wanted to point out the fact that they put in, Jesus puts in, I feared you. Then we have to go to that idea. Well, what does fear do to a human being? What's the problem? And then we have to continually fight against that so that we can, be op- we can open up and expand the kingdom of God. Okay, that was fear versus love. Again, all of these are like little nuggets inside of there. They often seem like they don't really connect, but they're there and they help us with our faith walk. And then let's finish with this. I'll show you this last one. It's called light and heavy. So light and heavy. Again, I'm just putting this up for the sake of those who would watch the video afterwards. You don't have to remember the Hebrew or how to pronounce it. Kel vahomer. The word kal is right here. Then you have va, that means and. So light and, and then the word homer, heavy. Now, what's interesting about that word homer, it's, it's got a fairly large sense of meaning. So it's used for a number of different things, including a homer and a half of wheat. So remember when Hosea, God says to Hosea, go redeem your wife for a homer and a half of wheat. So that's what that word homer, it becomes a measurement, a certain weight, but there's a weight behind it. So it's used for material. It's used to mean piling up on something. It's used as a measurement, like a homer and a half of barley. And then it also gets used as the word have, uh, heavy. So Homer, Homer, if I was saying it probably more correctly, Homer is material, it's matter. But it's also what matters, right? The things that matter in the world, matter, are heavy. The things that matter in our lives have weight to them. So this is often used to say, to compare something that's so much more important in life because it matters. It has matter to it. There's weight to it. Light and heavy, there's a rabbi. This is the reason why I wanted to bring up the rabbis earlier. There's a rabbi named Hillel. We've talked about Hillel before. He lived, well, during the time Jesus was born in the latter half of Hillel's life. So Hillel was a very famous, he's still famous, if you go down to San Diego State or UCSD, you have a Hillel Center on the campus. So he was a very famous rabbi, and they have what are called the seven rules of interpretation. So if you Google the seven rules of interpretation, the very first one you'll find is Calvahomer. That's the one that we're looking at. And it doesn't 
It doesn't come from him. There's biblical examples of it. So in 1 Samuel 23.3, David makes a comment that's a Calvahomer. In Proverbs 11.31, that's another one. So you do find them throughout the Bible. It's not like Hillel invented this. But it essentially says this. You have a minor premise on this side. You have a major premise on this side. If the minor is true, how much more is the major premise true? That's where you get light and heavy and the how much more. So let me show you an example. Turn, if you would, to Luke 11, 11 to 13. So Luke 11, 11 to 13. You'll all immediately recognize this when you see it. And by the way, Paul uses this type of technique multiple times, especially in the book of Romans. It must be like six or seven times in the book of Romans. So Luke 11, 11 to 13. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, would give him a snake instead? Or if he asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? Now, obviously, we would all say there's no father that would do that to their son. And now here comes the, the Calva Homer. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts of your children, here's the turning phrase, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So it, the, the lighter one is, hey, if you're a human being who has the tendency for, towards evil, if you know how to give a good gift, how much more then is your Father in heaven going to give a good gift? And we would say, well, he's infinitely more gracious and compassionate than we are in our limited nature. So if we go back to this, you get the minor one is humanity. Hey, if, if you human beings know how to do something good, well, how then, how much more a God who is good? And now this, this. Calva Homer is built into our parable. It's not explicit. It doesn't have the phrase, how much more. But check out, if we think about the parable, right? You have servants, the servants of a wicked king. If the servants of the wicked king are expected to be faithful, how much more, right? are the servants, that's you, should we be faithful to the good king? And that goes back to the fear versus love. If you're afraid of the wicked king, but you're faithful anyways, how much more should you be faithful to the good king? So the wicked king and the good king, and that's part of the comparison. But I just wanted to show you that because, you know, if we don't know that teaching technique or interpretive technique, it's all over the New Testament. Now that you know it, you'll see it all over the New Testament. Once you know it's there, you can see it, but we would miss that if we didn't know that that existed. So that's the light and heavy. Okay, so let's wrap this up. Just as way of review, we talked about Aesop. That says, look, there's been a long period of time that these stories about riches are used to tell people about life. Make sure you use what's given to you, whether it's your soul, your faith walk, the Word of God, whether it's actual wealth. It all goes into the category of, yes, go do that. 
there's fear versus love. How do we, our conception of God, as limited as it is, affects our conception of how we interact with other people in the world made in the image of God. So that love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself becomes pr so primarily important. And then the second, or the last one was the light and heavy, being able to compare if the servants of a bad king will do it, well, how much more than you servants of a good king ought to be doing this? It gives that emphasis of how's your faith walk if these servants are doing X. Okay, so if we have faithful stewardship, no doubt. You have fear versus love. That's a huge component. Next week, we'll look at this idea of return of a king. I'm going to connect it to a verse that's just a few verses ahead in Luke. We always have to remember that when you get to that part about the subjects, as Luke is telling his story, you notice that the priests do not want Jesus to be the Messiah. That's why they question his authority. If he has authority to, to be the Messiah, then we have to listen to him. They don't want that. So they're the subjects who don't want the king to become king. And then, of course, how are we dealing with God's word? God gave us words to study, to live by. They give life. What are we doing with them? And, of course, the more we study, the more we, we get out of this. Okay, let's do, I'm going to give you a teaser for next week. So next week, we're going to be looking at, it's, a, it's the very end of the triumphal entry. So as Jesus announces this parable about the kingdom that isn't going to come quite yet, he's going up over the Mount of Olives, he's going to descend down in Jerusalem, and along the way, he's going to say, verse 44 is going to come up, because it's, he's, it's a picture of the judgment of what's going to happen to Jerusalem. So they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls, they will not leave one stone on another. And then here comes the key phrase, and this is what we're going to look at. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, after next week, you'll see why that is such an important little phrase. Uh, it's one Hebrew word that if you're going to know a Hebrew word, you should know the word. It's called, it's pakad. And it means this, God's coming to you. It often, in the Hebrew Bible, it gets translated as visitation, it gets translated as punishment, it gets translated as accounting, so it's when they count the people, they're pakad, that's, a, that's an accounting. So what's the parable we just heard about? What's the king coming back? And he's going to take an account of what happened during his visitation. Now, the, the thing that's so cool is that visitation is either positive or negative, and it's used, I'll show you one verse, it's used in the positive, and then it's used in the negative. So your question becomes, is God showing up for the positive side to say, well done, good and faithful servant, or is he showing up on the negative side? And there's so much wrapped up into that little part of that verse right there. This isn't just Jesus showing up to Jerusalem. This is God's visitation showing up to the people and you're going to have to give an account. So we'll talk next week about this, this word, pakad, and what happens is when they, the Greek Old Testament, the word that's right there about God's coming to you, that's the word that they use for pakad. So we'll do that next week. You don't want to miss it, because it really helps this, 
you, you find it all over the Old Testament. Once you know it's there, you'll see it everywhere. And it's just so cool. <laughs>